The next set of cases was presented by Dr. Moriarty to Dr. Grothy. Our first patient that we saw was a 32-year-old mother of two who presented in May of 2007 with, as she described today, just not feeling right. She had abdominal bloating. She really had no rectal symptoms or GI symptoms. But long and short of it, this led to a workup. She was found to have a CAT scan which showed a very enlarged liver with multiple, multiple defects within the liver consistent with some form of metastatic disease. She describes today the emergency room physician who had to tell her this. She eventually had a colonoscopy that revealed a non-obstructing lesion in the sigmoid colon. That was biopsy adenocarcinoma, and one of the large lesions in the liver was biopsied as an adenocarcinoma. Now, when she presented, was she having any symptoms from the primary bleeding or pain? None at all. No, her bowel movements had been fine. She was not anemic. She was still menstruating. She's 32. There was really no real change, except her comment to us was that she just felt bloated. She felt tired. She had two kids. Her child had just been, I think at that time, six or seven months postpartum. Her youngest child was now, I think, almost three. And did it appear as if these lesions in the liver might be resectable or not? When you looked at her original scan, it was hard-pressed to think that this was a woman that was going to become resectable. Though at 32, when we first talked to her, that was certainly on the roadmap. It was something that we were thinking about and sort of played a part early on in the decisions that we made while we were treating her. But she had multiple sites of disease in the right lobe of the liver. She had the biggest lesion was an eight to nine centimeter mass in the right lobe of the liver, but she had an additional five or six other lesions in the right lobe, as well as disease in the left lobe, at least one of the segments, if not two. So he didn't take it off the table, but she had really widespread metastatic disease. And certainly a few years ago, we wouldn't have even thought about liver resection when we saw patients like this. So can you bring us up to date? Absolutely. So she was started on Avastin and Folfox, and within her first cycle, within two weeks, her tumor, this palpable tumor in the liver, which was really down to her pelvic crest, to the umbilicus, began to shrink. I mean, it became smaller and smaller with each and every treatment that she received. And she received six full doses of oxali with 5-FU and Avastin, and then she developed an allergic reaction to the oxaliplatin. She had hives, shortness of breath, rash, itching. So subsequent to that, we substituted CPT-11 for oxaliplatin and continued her on treatment every two weeks with bevacizumab plus the chemotherapy. Just a word to Axel in terms of oxaliplatin allergy. Can these patients be desensitized? I mean, she was having a good response to therapy. Patients can be desensitized, but I would only do that because there's always a risk of a stronger hypersensitivity reaction if you're backed against the wall. And in this situation, you had a reasonable, very reasonable treatment alternative, CPT-11. I mean, again, desensitization happens sometimes when we're running out of treatment options, perhaps in a KRAS mutant tumor. We're trying to get oxaplatin back into the mix, which had not failed before. But otherwise, you know, I completely agree in this situation where you wanted to achieve a stronger response for potential liver resection, you just switch from oxaplatin to inotecan. So then what? She continued to do well. She tolerated the treatment really very well. She had a mother of two young kids. She was fatigued. She was tired. She had some stomatitis and some diarrhea, but really did well. 
we staged her with scans and at uh, two months her tumor was better, at four months her tumor was better. And at the four month interval, we sent her to our liver surgeon just to have him take a look at what was happening in thinking about her as a surgical candidate in the future. He looked at that four month scan and said, yeah, things are better. Be nice if we can get things a little bit smaller. So we continued with an additional two months of chemotherapy with Avastin initially and CPT and 5FU. And then I think her last cycle, we withheld the Avastin because we were looking at her at that point in time. This is November of 07 as a possible surgical candidate where we're going to go in and at least look and see what we might be able to do. And that's what happened. She went to surgery in November and the surgeon at that time really looked with ultrasound evaluation of the liver, really found multiple different lesions. He identified at least eight separate lesions involving primarily the right lobe of the liver, but also a single segment in the left lobe, but tumor very close to the vascular structure, the hepatic artery, and at that time did not feel he could surgically resect it. But what he did do is he went and surgically, at the time of the surgery, ablated, radiofrequency ablated, the seven separate lesions that he could identify through the surgical ultrasound. And subsequent to surgery, she came back to us, had a very, very difficult, prolonged post-op course, really felt weak, tired, sick. It took her a long time to recover from the surgery. And this was something that stayed with me as as treating her. And when she came back, she herself wasn't as anxious as her husband was, about, well, will we ever be able to take this cancer out? All we did is freeze it. What's going to happen? Is my wife going to die? Is she going to live? So it was a very difficult time coming back from surgery because for the first time, she really felt sick. She didn't feel well. And she had gone through surgery, not to have really tumor removed, but actually, at least in my mind, debulked in the sense that it was ablated, but we still had viable tumor left. The surgeon who operated on her, what kind of background does he have? How often does he do these procedures? He is a very well-known, renowned liver surgeon. She had sought out two different opinions and kind of migrated out here to this particular surgeon because of family, people who knew the name. and What kind of hospital was she operated on? It was a university hospital. It was an academic center. So Axel, what do you think was going on there? Was it just the surgery? Was it the RFA? Why was she feeling so bad? You mean after the surgery? After the surgery, yeah. I mean, it was a major surgery in the sense that you also got a primary tumor taken out, as far as I recall. Oh, is that right? Yeah. No, we we didn't do it then. The first time, it was very interesting. She had a colonoscopy done right before that, and the primary tumor was gone. Oh. The primary tumor was gone, but when the surgeon could not take out all the cancer, he didn't resect the primary tumor at the first surgery. But the Uh, primary tumor was gone by colonoscopy. That was interesting. So let me get back. Why she had such a poor reaction to the surgery. You know, and this happened, and we saw several patients today together, and some did and some did not have a bad experience after the liver resection. An uncomplicated liver resection is actually probably easier than some of the colon surgeries, especially rectal surgeries that we do. So if you have no complications, etc., a right hepatectomy, for instance, my surgeons tell me it's like an appendectomy. They're out of the hospital within three, four days. We do laparoscopic hemipatectomies nowadays. I mean, there's definitely 
a great variability in terms of what patients perceive. She had had significant amount of chemotherapy before. That's something that we have to keep in mind because we know that the morbidity and mortality actually in some instances goes up with the numbers of cycles of chemotherapy. How did her normal liver look at surgery? Actually, the pieces of tissue that they took out, they sampled actually, this was back in November of 07, did not show significant effects of chemotherapy that we sometimes see. It's the autohepatitis, the blue liver. I mean, it was actually looked pretty normal. And she may have to keep in mind that she's a otherwise healthy, slim, non-obese patient. I mean, she's young. We know that the morbidity goes up in patients who had chemotherapy in the context of pre-existing steatosis. So a normal, healthy, slim woman, you know, probably has a lower risk of any dramatic liver changes. So can you bring us up to date on what happened since that time? Absolutely. So she recovered and came back. So this is now early 2008. And we did a post-operative CAT scan just to see what the liver looked like after these multiple ablative procedures. And as, as most people know, when they look at them, it looked a mess. I mean, it didn't look like anything like normal. But that was her baseline. That's what we were going to follow. So after her surgery, her markers, her CEA, which had been really a chemical marker for her disease right along, very elevated when we started, coming down from the 1600 to down to the 30 or 40 range before her surgery, by two or three months post-operative was up to 200, up to 250 again. So she was actually showing some evidence of disease activity. And at that point in time, we this is before KRAS testing, we changed her to Herbitux and CPT-11. I mean, she had already had a fair amount of 5-FU. She had had the Avastin. She had a good response. And to be quite honest, I was looking for a program that might offer her continued improvement without really significant toxicities. And she did well. She did well with the CPT and the Herbitux. She developed the on that we know. She developed the severe rash, the itching. So, you know, if we had done KRAS testing, I'm sure she was a non-mutant form. And her markers went back to normal again. It went down to two. And over the next six months, she had dramatic improvement in what we saw in her CAT scan because the radiofrequency ablative process subsided. And then when we looked at a PET scan, we really saw only these areas of rim enhancements around selective lesions in the right lobe of the liver. So we sent her back to the surgeon again and said, well, here's still a 32-year-old woman. Are we better? You know, is there something maybe more that we can do? Because we know that the chemotherapy eventually she will be refractory to this. So she went back to the surgeon and they brought her to the operating room. And they were able to, at that time, do a trisegmentectomy of the right lobe of the liver. The caudate lobe was preserved. They identified still about eight areas of viable tumor, removed almost all the right lobe of the liver. And segment three of the left lobe of the liver has some of 4A. So they really did major resection. But after the intraoperative ultrasound was done and looked at, all visible tumor seemed to have been removed. And at that time, her lesion in the colon was resected. So she had the definitive resection of her primary as well as an extensive hepatic resection that rendered her disease-free, at least as far as that we could measure. Was there a tumor in the site of the primary? microscopic cells. You know, she had microscopic cells still present, but the majority of the tumor was gone. And there was viable tumor in each of the segments of the liver that was resected with the lesions. And then what? 
And then she had a terrible post-operative course. I mean, she had trouble the first time, which... I mean, she's young, she's brave, she's good. There's the question with our liver surgeon was, can I do this in one step or two steps? She's had a lot of chemotherapy. What's her hepatic reserve? And as he describes, after thoughtful consideration, he thought he could do it in one step. And postoperatively, over the next four to six weeks, she had this, what I visualize as a non-surgeon, this rapid proliferation of hepatic cells and a hypertrophy of the remaining liver caused a lot of pleuritic pain, pleural effusions, some perihepatic fluid collections that had to be tapped, but there were no abscesses. It was non-infectious. A lot of pain associated with this over the period of six to eight weeks, requiring a fair amount of narcotics. But she got better. She got better. And she is now three months status post-hepatic resection and primary tumor resection. And we saw her today, and I must say she looks wonderful. Did she have any systemic therapy post-op? We gave her no further chemotherapy since her hepatic resection. So this is quite a saga. This woman's been through an awful lot, Axel. How did she appear to you today? She looked great. I mean, you don't see that she's a cancer patient. She looks healthy. She's not anemic. She doesn't have any visible symptoms. She was very upbeat. And she did recall, and she mentioned that the two separate surgeries she had was actually worse from her personal experience than any chemotherapy she received between and before. So I think she was pretty beat up by the last surgery, and I think one of the reasons not to ever consider at this point, you know, to give her immediate pulse-up chemotherapy was because she was just not in shape for that. The other question is also, what would you have given? I mean, because, you know, in the post-resection state, would you have given additional cycles of cetuximab or arenotecan? And I don't know. I think she's happy as she is right now. She looks great. She doesn't have any functional deficits. And she's pretty upbeat. She's focused back on her kids. You know, she has two young children, which she wants to be alive for. I mean, that's her main goal. Dan, do you think you would have taken the same approach if she'd been 60, 65, 70? Is there an age, regardless of how good a shape somebody might be in, where you might not have taken this kind of course? Neil, I can't imagine myself doing that. I think I was pushed because of this patient's young age, young family. After her first surgery... The husband, point blank, asked me, as I said, are we going to operate on her again? And I thought we were not. I thought we probably had done what we were going to do. And if she had a chemosensitive disease, we'll treat her, we'll be able to palliate her. But I wasn't terribly optimistic that I was going to get her back to surgery again. And given what she went through, I certainly wouldn't be entertaining it for a 70-year-old. A 50-year-old, probably a 60-year-old don't know. You know, Axel, sometimes I think it's almost a curse to be a young cancer patient because, you know, people often try things and end up causing a lot of misery. What do you think about this overall strategy of really aggressive approach to surgery and ablation in the liver? We talked about this earlier today, and the question that you're asking leads in the direction, are we over-treating patients? Are we sometimes too aggressive in some patients where we can't accept that a 32-year-old patient only has a palliative chance? Because even after all these surgeries and the state she's in right now, she has a very high risk of recurrence. So I would not think that we can talk about any curative option at this point in time. And it's nice that she is disease-free, but we'll really have to be careful to consider this cure. So I'm victim myself sometimes. I remember a young woman in her early 30s where I pushed for aggressive approach with resection of 12 disseminated liver metastases, and she benefited from it with disease-free interval for about half a year, then the tumor recurred quite rapidly, and she died within three years, actually. So I think the key issue is, though, 
the decision how to treat is goal-oriented. And if you make the decision early on, actually, in your treatment algorithm to say, you know, we need a response, we need to shoot for an aggressive approach, want to get this patient to surgery, then you kind of lock yourself in for some time at least into a certain route. And I think in this patient, the critical issue was at the time when she was on Falfox, Bevacism at first, had a dramatic response, then had this intolerability to oxalplatin, and one route would have been to say, okay, we've achieved a response, we have really gotten ahead of the cancer at this point, now maintain the response by just using Fibrofew Bevacizumab or Kipsidomy Bevacizumab. And this would have been a palliative approach by definition. As soon as the switch was made from oxalplatin to renutekin to achieve further response, it was more or less to achieve potential liver resection, because otherwise you would not use a renutekin at that point because you don't need to have a response, more or less, unless you want to shoot for a liver resection. This woman is obviously very young. What did you do or think about in terms of genetic counseling? We talked about it about a year ago, but she was in the midst of a plethora of treatment and surgical options. But she's actually sitting down. We have a genetic team with our counselors now, kind of reviewing her history. There really is no family history. I mean, this is a de novo young patient with colon cancer. But nonetheless, she's sitting down with our genetic counseling program and looking at what else can be looked at in identifying something that might be appropriate to know about for her siblings and her children. Any comments, Axel? I was actually present today when this was brought up again, and she was very receptive to that. I mean, she has kids. She knows the implications for her family and for her siblings. And I do believe that Sometimes we have to postpone these things, you know, because patients are overwhelmed with information, with we need to do this and that, you know. So if there is no immediate need for herself right now, which there isn't to get genetic counseling, I think it was better to postpone this until things have quieted down a little bit.